Hello, and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. Today, we're going to talk about the rise of Islam, the religion of Islam. And I should apologize to everybody because last week I said that we'd be doing an episode on Islam and the uh, beginnings of the Holy Roman Empire. But when I started cracking open the books, I realized that there is a whole lot going on here with the rise of Islam. And if I just talked about the Prophet Muhammad, I would not be giving you a full or complete picture of what was going on in the southern half of the Mediterranean at this time. And it's a big part of the story. Uh, the story of nationalism, right? It's a new type of nationalism. Well, maybe not new, but new-ish type of nationalism. And it's based on a shared religion. Sorry, Charlemagne. You are going to have to wait until the next episode. Also, I should add that I do have a few announcements today. So if you want to hear them, stick around at the end of the episode, if you don't, no worries. I'm not going to bother you with them here. Now, finally, before we begin, I should give you the disclaimer, right? It's important that you know your source, and my bias is from a secular perspective. But it is impossible to talk about the beginnings of Islam without talking about some supernatural stories. And here's what I mean, right? If you want to understand what's going on in the Mediterranean in the first century, from a historical perspective at least, you don't have to talk about the life of Jesus, right? You might have to talk about what some of his followers did later as Christianity became an influential force in that area. But during the life of Jesus himself, it was a relatively small, relatively local movement. During the life of the prophet Muhammad, Islam became a major force on the world stage. This happened very quickly. So, if you're going to talk about these events, you do have to talk about some supernatural stories. Um, and it was frustrating for me to record in another regard, because while there are many excellent Islamic historians, right, Ibn al-Athir comes to mind, but they all came around later. What you have at this time is a body of religious literature. And much like Christianity, Islam is kind of a religion, but in many senses it's a group of religion, right? There are differences between them. I mean, people of different Muslim sects and what they believe and what the traditions are in their writings. So at some parts of this story... It's impossible to really draw any kind of concrete picture. Now, this is an Impressionist painting. 
So all of this is controversial. But as Napoleon said, history is a set of lies that people have agreed upon. In other words, what people believe affects history, regardless of whether it actually happened exactly the way people say it happened, right? In, in some senses, the tradition that something happened can be even more important. And one last thing, while I have studied Latin, French, and ancient Greek, and I'm confident in their pronunciation, I am not a scholar of Arabic, and I am probably going to botch some pronunciation here and there, so I apologize to your ears. Now, after last week's episode, I was talking with a friend and he took me to task because in that episode I referred to the Arian heresy as, quote, just an obscure theological issue. Now, what I was trying to convey was that the dispute between the Arian Christians and Nicene Christians was over the metaphysical nature of God the Son. Something that, to us modern people, seems very obscure and something that only, like, some theologians somewhere would really even be concerned about, right? It's not something your average person would even think about today. But back in the day, right back in the so-called Dark Ages, where we are, religion is much more important to people, right? So this... Arian split in Christianity, while it may have been based on an obscure question of theology, it became central to people's identity in important ways. And it also got connected with elements of class and race. So, for instance, when you had most of uh, southwestern Europe as a Nicene Christian population ruled by Germanic Aryan invaders who are their upper class, well, that all ties together, and it makes the Aryan-Nicene split very important, which is why it was a big deal when Clovis converted to Nicene Christianity. But my point being, even these minute points of disagreement can have huge repercussions. And if you want another example of that, take a look at the countries of Saudi Arabia and Iran today. These are two large modern nation states. They're both regional powers. And yet, one is majority Sunni Muslim and one is majority Shia Muslim, and they hate each other. Why is that? It's not just because of their religious beliefs, obviously, right? There's been over a thousand years of other history and animosity built up there, too. There's a lot more going on. But at the same time, the origin and the justification for many of these disputes lies in the origin of the religion because the religion was conceived as a religious state, Right, when Jesus was preaching, or when 
the Buddha was preaching, they were not preaching about building a Christian or a Buddhist nation-state with a Christian or a Buddhist army, right? Now, those things have existed in history, right? But the founders of the religion themselves were relatively local people. Their impact was felt later. Muhammad built a state, and he built it during this religious time. And if you remember what we talked about in the first episode, he built it during a time of conflict between monotheism, right, and polytheism, being the worship of many gods. And wherever monotheism, the belief in one god, shows up, it rubs against this polytheistic mindset because different polytheistic faiths can sort of get along, right? There are many gods, you have your god, I have my god, what's one more god, right? Now, when someone comes along saying that their god is the only god, and that all of your gods are fake gods, well, that's going to create some trouble. So what happens when a new belief system appears in the Mediterranean? Where we left off last episode, the Emperor Justinian had died in 565. Now, by this point, the Arian heresy was almost gone. There were a few kingdoms in Hispania and Germania, barbarian kingdoms, that still were officially Arian. Uh, even there, like I said, it was basically only the leadership who were Arian, and by 589... Hispania's last Aryan king converted to Catholicism. A couple of Lombard kings in northern Italy remain Aryan for about another century, but it's mostly extinct. We can stop talking about the Aryan heresy at this point. Almost at the same time, though, right? Justinian died in 565, and almost at the same time, five years later, the prophet Muhammad is born. Now, this is an approximate date, right? We're pretty sure he was born in the year 570. But the exact year is controversial. He may have been born as early as 568. Uh, what we do know is that the year he was born was known as the year of the elephant in Mecca. Now, where Muhammad lives, the city of Mecca is in sort of the central western part of Arabia. And they had been in a war with the king of Yemen, right? The king of the southern tip of Arabia. Now, Arabia at this time is a little bit complicated. It's a tribal society. So when we're talking about kings, we're usually talking about someone who is the head of a tribal confederation. Right? How much power they have will depend on how strong their position is within their tribal confederation. And in this battle, Muhammad's tribe, the Quraysh tribe, was victorious against the king of Yemen. And the reason they called this the year of the elephant was that this Yemeni king who attacked Mecca had elephants in his army. 
So Muhammad is born into a tribe that is on the upswing, right? The Khoirash tribe essentially runs Western Arabia at this point. And they put together a confederation of pagan tribes. Now, at this time, the city of Mecca is already a pilgrimage site. There is a very important pagan shrine there. And all of the various Arab tribes and clans in the area have their own patron deities, and these deities are sort of embodied in tribal totems, and those totems are all kept in a shrine called the Kaaba. And so at this time, the time of Muhammad's birth, there are roughly 360 of these totems in the Kaaba. That's quite a large confederation the Khoirash are dealing with. Um, and because all these to totems are there, the Kaaba, and hence Mecca, become a religious destination, a pilgrimage site, in the pre-Islamic era. Right? Remember, Muhammad is just a little baby when all this is happening. And during Muhammad's very early childhood, the Khoirash tribe to which he is born uh, is becoming immensely successful, immensely wealthy, and immensely powerful within the region. But at the same time, the tribe is divided into clans. Right? These are sort of subdivisions within the tribe, and Muhammad's particular clan is not doing very well. Right? This... Uh, I don't want to say tourist economy, that might be a little too modern, but tourist economy might actually be a really good term here because a lot of Mecca's economy right now relies on all these pilgrims. Something else I should point out here from the outset is that Muhammad is not actually the name of the prophet. We don't actually know his name. It's not written down anywhere. Muhammad is a title. It means praiseworthy or the praiseworthy one. Right? And in the Quran and the Hadith, he's actually referred to by dozens of titles throughout the text. This is similar to, you know, today we would refer to Jesus Christ, but... During his time, he would have been known as Yeshua ben Yosef. Well, we don't know what you would have called Muhammad at the time, but he's called Muhammad, praiseworthy, in the text. And we will call him Muhammad throughout for simplicity. Now, Muhammad's father had died before he was born. And he ends up being raised by a foster mother named Halima and her husband. At least until the age of two. Uh, at this time, he returns to live with his mother, named Amina, but she dies when he's six. Then he goes to live with his grandfather for two years, and his grandfather dies. And at the age of eight, Muhammad is given into the charge of his uncle, Abu Talib. As I said, the clan is poor, and Muhammad needs to earn his keep. So, while Abu Talib and Muhammad are very genuinely close. As a matter of fact, many of the poetic verses in Islamic tradition are directly attributed to Abu Talib. Uh, nonetheless, 
uh, Muhammad has to do some work. So he joins Abu Talib on trading missions. Now, to understand the significance of this, it's important to understand a little bit about the Arabian Peninsula. If you look at a map, the Arabian Peninsula is positioned right between Persia, right? There's that narrow sea, the Persian Gulf, to the northeast of the peninsula, separating it from Persia. And then to the southwest, you have the Red Sea separating Arabia from Egypt. From there, you can very easily get to the Mediterranean. And going the other way, from Arabia, through the Sea of Arabia, you can get to India simply following the coast of South Asia. That was a very rich area for trade. And by the way, those sea routes had been open for a long, long time. Right? You have ancient Roman coins showing up in China centuries before this. Right? And how do you think the Romans got their silk? Well, it came from China, down the coast of Asia, to India, and then through Arabia to the Mediterranean. Now, so far on this show, we've been playing around in that Mediterranean sandbox. Pretty much everywhere we've talked about so far has been part of the Roman Empire at some point. But the Arabian Peninsula never was conquered by the Romans. Now, the Romans had built some forts in the Middle East, right, uh, modern-day Iraq, uh, and sometimes they referred to Syria and Jordan as Arabia Petraea. But those areas are north of the actual Arabian Peninsula, right? And the actual peninsula itself remained independent. Uh, for one thing, the friendly tribes and petty kingdoms on the peninsula got along well with the Romans. They were much better as trading partners than as subjects. And as a side note, let's also not forget that heavily armored, slow-moving Roman legions do not perform well in the desert against mounted opponents. So maybe there was a little bit of that going on as well, just really not worth conquering. And the Arabian Peninsula is actually a very large area. It is the largest peninsula in the world. Uh, but most of it is arid, right? The central portion of Arabia has very little water. The Romans actually called that area Arabia Deserta. There are small cities and settlements uh, with local oases, right? streams or springs where you can put in a well, Right, maybe there's even a little stream where you can grow some date palms and do a little bit of irrigation. But really, if you're going to support any kind of population there, you have to trade for food. Now, there were parts of the coastal areas right along the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea and, and particularly the end of the uh, peninsula, what we would call Yemen today, uh, that are much more fertile. In fact, you see this distinction even in the Arabic names for the parts of Arabia. Uh, the central and northern parts are called Al-Sham, 
and the southern coastal area is called Al-Yaman. And in the time of Muhammad, the Arabian Peninsula was also very religiously diverse, as you might expect from a civilization where people are doing a lot of travel and coming into contact with a lot of different cultures. So in addition to the pagans, you also have a number of tribes which are either Christian or Jewish. And people of both those persuasions had actually spread even further by this point. You have Jewish communities and Christian communities as far south uh, down uh, the African coast as Ethiopia, and you have them as far east as India. And trade with the Mediterranean Sea isn't quite what it was back at the high point of the Roman Empire, but if you're an Arab trader, you still have the Byzantines, you still have the Persians, right? They're all pretty rich, and since they're constantly fighting each other, why not just benefit from that and trade with both of them? And Muhammad's next few years are less well-known than his earliest years. Uh, we do know that he traveled as far as the Mediterranean in the West— and that he went as far as India in the east. So he would have been, I don't know if he would have been better traveled than your average Arab in these days. Right? I imagine if you were an Arab trader, you probably did a lot of travel, period. But he certainly had more travel experience than your average person, by a long shot. And he would have been exposed during this time to many different cultures and many different religions. Uh, he was notably exposed to Christianity at one point. He would, he would have been exposed at many points. But there's one particular incident that's recounted where he uh, runs into an itinerant monk. And the monk immediately goes into this state of ecstasy and says that Muhammad is going to become a great prophet. And throughout all of his travels, he had also become disgusted with the nature of contemporary Arab society, right? the society in, in his day. Uh, he was disturbed by a number of things, but uh, primarily uh, there were three issues. Uh, one was the constant feuding between the tribes. When you have a tribal-based justice system, there is inevitably going to be a lot of that. Um, another thing he was disgusted by was the widespread cultural acceptance of female infanticide. This, this had to do with the, the fact that you were dealing with a patriarchal society and uh, through various inheritance laws and customs, it could be expensive to have little girls and very beneficial to have little boys. But what ended up happening because of those uh, cultural carrots and sticks was a lot of poorer families uh, would leave uh, female children out to die. And finally, there was just the widespread poverty and injustice in general. Right? Arabia was home to a lot of wealth. But most of that wealth was concentrated in the richest trading families, right? Your average Arab was actually pretty poor. 
Um, and in these days, uh, most of the people in Mecca in particular were just kind of scraping out a living, uh, selling trinkets when pilgrimage season came around and all the various tribes came to wish worship at the Kaaba. And Muhammad comes to believe that the root of all of these problems is something that he called Jahiliya. I may have butchered that, but what it means literally is ignorance, oftentimes rendered as religious ignorance or idolatry. Regardless of the exact translation, I, th I think you get the idea uh, that Muhammad believed that it was this ignorance that was causing all of these troubles in Arab society. As a matter of fact, even today within Islamic tradition, the pre-Islamic era in Arabia is often referred to as Jahiliya, the, the age of ignorance, you might say. And Muhammad begins to pray in a cave for several weeks each year. Now, you can still go to this cave today. Um, it is a Muslim holy site, and it's called Hira. Now, it's located on a mountain outside the city of Mecca called Jabal al-Nur. And if you go there, it's about a two-hour hike from the ground, and it's a rough climb, right? You don't need fancy climbing equipment or anything, but you'd better be in shape uh, to make this walk up to the grotto. And it's about a 12-foot deep cave by about 5 feet wide. And Muhammad is spending a lot of time there every year uh, in prayer and meditation. Now here's where the story gets a little bit supernatural. And any time you hear anything about the supernatural, keep in mind that there are different Islamic traditions. This also goes for many of the non-supernatural things in the story, just basic events. I will try to point out where something is a significant matter of controversy, but recognize that I'm an outsider and I'm telling a very complicated story in a very short period of time. So after pretty much everything I say for the next hour or so, just sort of add to yourself in your head afterwards, yeah, but it was more complicated than that, because it almost certainly was. At any rate, it is during one of these uh, visits to the grotto in the year 610, at about the age of 40, that Muhammad has a vision of the angel Gabriel, or Jabril in Arabic. And Gabriel commands him to read. He says he cannot read, and the angel hugs him. And this happens two more times. Now that's common in religious stories, right, for something to happen three times. And the third time it happens, Gabriel gives Muhammad the first five verses of chapter 96 of what would become the Quran. He says, read 
in the name of your Lord who created man from a clinging substance. Read, Your Lord is most generous. He who taught by the pen taught man that which he knew not. Now, Muhammad is understandably confused and overwhelmed, and he returns home to his wife, Kadia, and tells her what happened, and she takes him to the home of her cousin, who is a Christian named Waraka ibn Nafal. And when he hears the story, he says that Muhammad has to be a prophet, and he predicts that Muhammad's own tribe will cast him out says that he regrets that when that time comes, he will not be able to help. And sure enough, Waraka dies a few months later. And Muhammad would spend the next three years in a deep depression. Uh, he's afraid to be a prophet because in this time and place, if he came out saying that he was having visions of the angel Gabriel, people would think he is possessed they might even execute him. So he spends three more years praying and meditating in the cave. Finally, after all that time, Gabriel appears to him a second time, confirms that he is indeed God's prophet, and that he is commanded to start preaching. Now, up to this time, the only people who really knew about Muhammad's visions were his wife, Kadia, right, who we already mentioned, his adopted son, Zaid, uh, his friend, Abu Bakr, and his 10-year-old cousin, Ali. Now, if it sounds like I'm throwing a lot of names at you, I am, but Muhammad's friend, Abu Bakr, and his 10-year-old cousin, Ali, would both become very important figures in their own right. And at this point, Muhammad starts preaching in public now, as he's commanded, and his early teachings focus around his main concerns. As a matter of fact, it sounds a lot like early Christianity. Basically, the early Muslim beliefs during this time are belief in God, asking forgiveness for sins, praying regularly, being faithful in marriage, uh, rejecting uh, the corrupting materialistic influence of commercial society, giving charity to the poor, and, of course, not committing female infanticide. And it wasn't just the teachings of Muhammad that were similar to the teachings of Christianity at this time, but he also attracted similar followers to the early Christians. Uh, most of the first Muslims were younger sons, right, meaning sons who did not stand to inherit their father's wealth. The poorer folks, his followers also were poor in general, and a lot of them were foreigners, uh, either people who had recently moved to Arabia and needed protection, or just people who happened to be passing through trading and heard his messages. Now, at first, the early Muslims are actually accepted within Mecca, but then Muhammad starts directly preaching against paganism. Now, as you'll recall, 
this is not the first time in history we've seen a conflict between monotheism and polytheism. And when Muhammad starts standing outside the Kaaba, this pagan shrine, right, the economic lifeblood of the city in some ways, and starts preaching against worshipping those pagan idols, that really does not sit well with the Meccan elite. Right again, they, they rely on pilgrimage money from the Kaaba, and here's this guy out in front telling people to go away and worship his god instead. Low-level violence begins to break out. This isn't anything that seems to be coordinated. It seems to just be a result of rising hostility. Uh, so at this point, it's not as if the uh, Meccan leaders are all at once cracking down on the Muslims, but they don't do them any favors. I mean, for instance, uh, several Muslim slaves are killed during this time period by their masters for refusing to give up their faith. And as a result of this persecution, most of the early Muslims relocate to Ethiopia. Uh, this area is called Aksum or Abyssinia, uh, but it's south of Arabia, down the coast of Africa, a little ways, and they are given sanctuary there by a friendly emperor who, oddly enough, is actually a Christian emperor at this time. But Muhammad himself remains in Mecca despite the danger. Uh, part of the reason he's able to do this is because he is under uh, the protection of his uncle, Abu Talib. Right Again, this is a tribal society, and the way the legal system works is basically a system of customary rules and then negotiations between tribal patriarchs. So if you have the protection of a tribal patriarch, nobody can just kill you, for instance. Right? Because if they do that, they're going to have to deal with this powerful man who has you under his protection. On the other hand, if you have no protection, well, someone can just kill you, and nobody's going to do anything about it. But right now, Muhammad is at least somewhat safe because he has his uncle's protection. Now, some of the other tribes organize a boycott against Abu Talib to try and force him to lift this protection, and Abu Talib refuses for three years. Eventually, the other tribes relent, but this act has annoyed the rest of the Quraysh tribe, right? They're not too happy with Abu Talib for making them go through all this. And it's around this time, right, the time of the lifting of the boycott, that the Muslim colonists in Ethiopia return to Mecca. And there's a little bit of controversy as to why they might have done this. The most obvious reason is that well, the boycott was over. Uh, clearly, there were other things going on, right? So why is the boycott over? Well, it could be that there were just enough Muslims in Mecca at this point, right? 
Muhammad has kept making converts this whole time, maybe there's just enough Muslims there at that point that it is no longer practical for these tribes to maintain a boycott. They lift the boycott and oh, all these Muslims who left and went to Ethiopia can now come back. Uh, there is a heretical belief, though. And I should point out that, as far as I'm aware, no modern form of Islam believes this. But it was widely believed among many Muslims for quite some time uh, that uh, Muhammad had authorized the worship of some pagan gods in order to mollify the local Arab leaders and that they lifted the boycott and that's why they did it. Now, according to this story, uh, the very next day, uh, the angel Gabriel appears to Muhammad and says, no, 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 you got it wrong. Those verses came from the devil and they don't count. Uh, and that is an incident called the satanic verses. Uh, and Muhammad then recanted that and says, nope, nope, just one God. Never mind. Now, like I said, that is a heretical belief today, but amongst many Muslims for many hundreds of years, uh, this was an accepted story. By the way, from a historical perspective, the first story just makes more sense to me uh, that there were enough Muslims in Mecca that the boycott was no longer really sustainable. But who knows? Regardless, at this point, the Muslims from Ethiopia return to Mecca, and they are now a very large percentage of the population. Things seem to be going well. But in 619, roughly nine years after his first vision in the cave, roughly six years into his preaching, uh, in the year 619, Muhammad experiences what is called the Year of Sorrow. Uh, that is a year in which he experiences not one but two deaths. Uh, the first is the death of his wife, Kadia, right? The very first person to believe that he was a prophet uh, who had stood by him all this time through, I imagine, a whole lot of trouble. Uh, uh, you know, one, one can imagine with all the persecution of the Muslims and the pressure on Muhammad that she was almost certainly getting a lot of pressure as well and standing by him throughout all of this and she dies, uh, apparently quite young. Uh, his uncle, Abu Talib, also dies. And this isn't just sad for Muhammad on a personal level, but it's also politically important because without Abu Talib, he does not have any tribal protection. Right, The rest of the Khoirash are now his enemies, uh, and he's effectively a refugee overnight. Uh, so he takes off uh, looking for another tribal leader who will basically adopt him, give him the tribal protection he needs to keep on preaching. And in the course of his journeys, he travels to Jerusalem and various parts of the Middle East, and he cannot find any tribes who are willing to give him sanctuary. 
during this time, he also has a very important vision uh, that is central uh, to Islam, and it's called the Isra and Mirage. And this is a nighttime journey where Muhammad supposedly was taken to a mosque on the hill in Jerusalem. Now, this would later be the Dome of the Rock. And the angel Gabriel then takes him on a journey through heaven and hell. On the way, he even gets to speak with previous important Islamic prophets like Abraham and Jesus. But even though he's had this important spiritual experience, he still cannot find sanctuary anywhere, and he has to return to Mecca. And while he is there, he must rely not on tribal protection, but on protection from his Muslim followers. The presence of the Muslims in the city continues to be problematic for the elites, and much like before, the situation is not yet boiling over, but it's quite slowly getting more and more intense with more and more low-level violence. In the year 622, Muhammad learns of a plot to assassinate him, and he and his followers decide that uh, it's time for them to get out of Mecca. Uh, fortunately for them, there is already a community of 75 Muslims living in the city of Medina, which is not too far away. So uh, Muhammad and his Meccan followers uh, plan to sort of escape in the middle of the night, but the night of their escape, the Khoirash come for him. And Muhammad ends up being besieged in his house and in yet another one of these stories that varies depending what tradition you're in, uh, he basically steps outside right in front of the Khoirash, sprinkles a handful of dust uh, and becomes invisible and just sort of walks out right through the crowd and he and his followers relocate to Medina. Uh, almost immediately upon arriving... Muhammad comes to an agreement not just amongst the Muslim community, but an agreement between several tribes. And what they agree to is to unite as an alliance under Muhammad. Now, this is not, as I said, all Muslims. A lot of them are even pagans. There is a Jewish tribe. But they unite as an alliance under Muhammad, and something that this achieves, this, this uh, agreement called the Constitution of Medina or the Charter of Medina, is it basically makes the Muslims into a tribe of their own. Right? So not only are they a religious movement now, but they're also a tribe that can negotiate and make deals with other tribes and maybe even go to war with them. And at this time, life in Medina is hard. Right, as I mentioned, most of the Arabian Peninsula is arid. And there is an oasis at Medina. There's a small plantation of date palm trees, but it's not enough to support the Muslim community. I mean, number one, it's just not enough to eat. And number two, it's certainly not enough to trade and make any sort of living beyond that subsistence. So in order to survive, 
Muhammad decides that the Muslims, now the Muslim tribe, and their confederated allies, are going to raid Meccan caravans, right? Remember, Mecca is a major pilgrimage site, and there's also a lot of trade that just goes through, right? You've got a lot of really rich people who live there. So you have probably the richest target in all of Arabia, and it's not all that far from Medina. Throughout the year 623, uh, Muhammad and the Muslims engage in a number of raids on Meccan caravans, there are various setbacks. For instance, there are spies in Medina working for the Meccans who start warning the Meccans of these impending raids. So Muhammad then has to start sending out raiders with sealed orders so nobody knows where they're going to attack until they've already left Medina. It gets a little bit cloak and dagger for a while. Um, and in early 624... Muslim raiders infiltrate a Meccan caravan that is headed towards the city of Mecca. Now, this time is a holy month in all of Arab culture. And violence is prohibited. But on the other hand, if the raiders wait until the month is over, the caravan will already have arrived in Mecca which is a holy city where violence is also banned. So what do you do? Uh, Muhammad decides uh, that he will violate the holy month rather than violate the city of Mecca. And again, he justifies this, saying that none of this would have happened had the Meccans not persecuted the Muslims. But nonetheless, there is widespread outrage around many of the pagan tribes, right? Not just the Quraysh, uh, who he had attacked, but many of their allied tribes. Again, this was a major taboo that was broken. Uh, and this galvanizes support among various local tribes against Muhammad. And they join up with the Quraysh. And in late 624... They are ready to strike back. And through their various spies, they learn that there is an impending Muslim raid on a caravan. And they send a force of 600 male armored infantry, 700 camel cavalry, and 100 horse cavalry to intercept this Muslim raiding force. Um... Now, the Muslim raiding force is not insubstantial. Muhammad himself is leading it. Probably one of the reasons it was being attacked, right? If you're going to muster this huge force of soldiers to deal with some raiders, why not deal with Muhammad too while you're at it? And then you don't have to worry about these Muslims anymore, period, maybe. Uh, Muhammad's force consists of 230 infantry, about 70 camels, and we are told two horses. Uh, those were probably either for baggage or for uh, running messages, probably less so for combat just because there were two of them. It's not really useful to send a two-horse cavalry charge against anything. Uh, and this force, nonetheless, it is outnumbered by the Meccan force by about three to one. 
If you were doing the math there and that number seems a little off, it's because a few soldiers had uh, deserted the Meccan task force before they actually ran into Muhammad. Some of them had turned back. And the Khoirash soldiers are reaching the end of their supplies. Right? They're approaching an oasis called Bader. And at Bader, they can restock on water. And that's where Muhammad decides to meet them. So the Muslims line up around the well at Bader. So now the Khoirash are in a little bit of a pickle, right? Their soldiers are tired and almost out of water. But if they're going to even refill their supplies, they have to beat the Muslims first. They have to fight this battle. Uh, and when the two forces do meet each other, it's late in the day. The battle does not take place that night. Uh, neither side is really prepared for a night battle. Um, Muhammad has his troops line up. Uh, they are on rising ground. So, in other words, if the Khoirash are going to come towards them, they're going to have to charge up a hill towards the Muslims. And we're told that the night before the battle... All of the Muslims sleep very soundly, right? It, it's almost as if there's a sense of peace over the camp. Uh, all of them sleep soundly, that is, with the exception of Muhammad, who spends the night in prayer and meditation. And as a matter of fact, is when we read the accounts, what we almost see is that Muhammad seems to be in a kind of religious trance, by the time the battle starts, right? He's in this state where he's in direct contact with the supernatural. But in the morning, the battle begins as battles in this time and place often do with a series of duels, right? We saw that between the Greeks and the Persians in the last episode. Uh, and just as Greeks and Persians like to start battles with personal duels, well, so do the Arabs, and uh, there's a whole series of these. You can read about them. Uh, the only one that I would really mention in particular is that Muhammad's young cousin, Ali, right now almost 20 years old, right? He was about 10 when Muhammad had his first visions. Now he's almost 20. Uh, Ali wins one of these duels. And after the duels, it seems as if the Khoirash just sort of charge in en masse. And the Muslims form a defensive formation. And uh, as the Khoirash are charging in, they're getting pelted by Muslim arrows. But it seems like that's not going to be enough to stop them. Remember, they outnumber the Muslims three to one. And even if they are charging at them uphill, that's a pretty significant numerical advantage. At this time, in the heat of battle, Muhammad has another vision, and God says that he will send angels to fight alongside the Muslims. And at that point, Muhammad picks up a handful of sand or gravel or dust, and he scatters it, and a sudden sandstorm arises and blows from the Muslims' backs right down into the faces of the Meccans. 
you got to understand, right? These men are already dehydrated. We live in an era where they didn't even understand hydration, right? You hear about guys waking up in the morning and drinking a stiff glass of brandy because you might die today, putting on a suit of heavy armor and going to battle. Not generally advisable. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, what we are told is that supernatural angelic cavalry charge in with the form. Now, could these have been the 70 camels that Muhammad had with him that we already know about? I'm not sure. Uh, but here's what we read about this in the Quran, which is our primary source here. Um, it was not you, you meaning the Muslims, it was not you, but God who smote them. God smote them so that he might richly reward the faithful. God hears all and knows all. Even so, God will surely frustrate the designs of the unbelievers. If you, you now meaning the Meccans, if you were seeking a judgment, now has a judgment come to you. If you resume your war against the faithful, we will return to their assistance. We, the royal we, God, will return to the assistance of the Muslims against the Meccans. And your forces, superior though they may be in number, shall avail you nothing, for God is with the faithful. Now, whether or not this event was actually supernatural or anything like that, it would not be the first time that wind or weather has played a significant role in history. Right? If you're a history fan, you may be familiar with the original kamikaze, or divine wind. Uh, right when the Mongols tried to invade Japan by sea and their ships were at anchor off the coast and this hurricane blew through and sank most of the fleet and ended the invasion, right? That's an example of a sudden change in the weather having a major impact on history, right? I mean, imagine what Mongol Japan would have looked like. That's so outside of our existing reality. It's like something you'd expect to see in a strategy game, right? One of those what-if scenarios, but we saw just now one of those what-if scenarios with the Muslims against the Meccans, right? What if that sandstorm doesn't blow in? And there's actually a fairly recent example of this. Now, this event was before I was born, but... I probably have, as a matter of fact, I know I have at least a couple listeners who are old enough to remember this, uh, because it wasn't really that long ago. In the year 1980, U.S. President Jimmy Carter was in a close race against Ronald Reagan for the presidency. Now, today, we remember that election as a blowout because it was, right? There was basically no contest. But at the time, the polls were showing a pretty close race until very late in the game. Now, during that election, Jimmy Carter was dealing with the Iranian Revolution. 
student protesters had overthrown the previous government, and that previous government was a U.S.-backed regime that was not terribly popular with the Iranian people. As retaliation, uh, these rebels, who would become ultimately the uh, Islamic Republic of Iran, right, because they won, and when you win, you're no longer rebels, you're the government, but they were holding American diplomats hostage in Iran, and this, understandably, was a big scandal. Right? Normally, even in wartime between two major countries, they don't hold each other's diplomats hostage. Right? They may cut off diplomatic relations, they may kick out diplomats, but they don't hold them hostage. And needless to say, the American people were a little upset about this and wanted something to be done. So President Carter got the military to draft a plan for a rescue attempt. And you can read about this rescue attempt in more detail in plenty of places. It was called Operation Eagle Claw. Suffice it to say, it was an overly complex plan. And if any one thing went wrong, the entire plan could go very wrong. And early on in the operation, some helicopters were hit by a sandstorm, and one of them, one of the eight helicopters in the operation, was disabled. Now, to be fair, there were also two other helicopters that failed for unrelated reasons to the sandstorm, but the fact is, they could have pulled off the operation with six helicopters, they couldn't pull it off with five. So after this sandstorm, uh, they had to pull out... And during the process of retreating, they had to refuel these helicopters, sort of improvise a refueling with a tanker nearby, and there was a crash, and eight U.S. soldiers were killed. And, oh, by the way, now the Iranians knew that the U.S. was trying a raid, and the hostages were still hostage. This was such a bad mishap that the United States Secretary of State Carter Page resigned in disgrace. And in interviews later on, Carter blamed his failure to secure the hostages for his landslide loss in the election. And I want to play a little bit of audio here because right, this is relevant history after all, and this is one of those ways in which older history, like the story of Muhammad and the sandstorm at the Battle of Bader, those things can inform our understanding of modern events. So after this disastrous military operation, there was a presidential debate, and Reagan famously, according to polls, absolutely destroyed Carter in the debate. So I'm going to play his closing statement here, and I want you to pay attention to the framing. The framing is all about Jimmy Carter being a failure. Now, Reagan was a gentleman. He didn't actually say those words. But when you listen to how he sort of frames his argument, it's pretty clear that's what he's saying. Here's what Reagan said in the last 1980 presidential debate. Next Tuesday is election day. 
Next Tuesday, all of you will go to the polls. You'll stand there in the polling place and make a decision. I think when you make that decision, it might be well if you would ask yourself, are you better off than you were four years ago? Is it easier for you to go and buy things in the stores than it was four years ago? Is there more or less unemployment in the country than there was four years ago? Is America as respected throughout the world as it was? Do you feel that our security is as safe, that we're as strong as we were four years ago? And if you answer all of those questions, yes, why then I think your choice is very obvious as to who you'll vote for. If you don't agree, if you don't think that this course that we've been on for the last four years is what you would like to see us follow for the next four, then I could suggest another choice that you have. Wow. Whether or not you are personally a fan of Ronald Reagan or whether you are very much not a fan of his, that's a hell of a speech. Right. And that rhetorical device, right, that are you better off now than you were four years ago device hinges on this narrative that was going on in the election of Carter being weak. And you have to wonder if that would have been completely different had this raid been successful, right? Had this sandstorm not blown in in the desert, when and where it did, is that raid successful? Do the American hostages get out? Is Carter the president who launched the successful raid to rescue our brave public servants? All of a sudden, the entire narrative is different. I don't know if Reagan can use this framing device in that case. Now, there were other things going on. There was an oil embargo, all of that, but the loss to American prestige from that one event was major. Anyway, I have gone on a massive digression here talking about how weather can impact history. And to get back to our point, that one sandstorm at the Battle of Bader definitely changed history. The Meccans, those of them who survived and were not run down by the Muslim countercharge we're now on their back foot, and uh, at this point, this war goes on for several years, and the exact details are not really historically interesting. And there's a whole lot that goes on in this time period in terms of Muhammad's preaching and things that are important to Muslim uh, theology and teaching later on, but none of it is really historical because it's just kind of back and forth between the two sides. Uh, nonetheless, despite the sort of stalemate with Mecca, Muslim influence is growing. Um, right? Muhammad manages to secure trade relations with several of the coastal tribes right down in Yemen and on uh, the Persian Gulf Coast, and these provide a vital supply of food. Now, I should point out that our sources are religious and they don't specifically talk about this supply of food. But if you know anything about the economy in the area, you know that the Muslims had to trade with somebody on the coast in order to get food because otherwise there would not be so many of them because they would have starved. So 
They secured a supply of food this way. And the war between the Muslims and the Meccans, the Khoirash Confederation, culminates in the year 627 with a battle called the Battle of the Trench. In January of 627, a Khoirash coalition that includes both pagan Arab and Jewish tribes attacks Medina. Now, the total number of these coalition troops is about 10,000, and that number includes about 600 horses. The Muslim defenders, meanwhile, number only 3,000, and almost all of them are infantry. Now, the Muslims were warned of this attack a week in advance, so they have a little bit of time to prepare. And the terrain around Medina does favor them. The city is surrounded by mountains and forests, right? There are mountains to the east, forests to the south, even more hills to the west. The only really good way to assault the city is from the north. Uh, so Muhammad orders a trench dug across the northern approach to the city, and he also builds a supporting trench to the west, just in case the Khoirash Confederation is able to send troops over those hills to the west. He's got a little protection there, too. Uh, and the defenders also harvest all the food in the area. Now, remember, there's not much food here, though. It's basically a small date palm plantation, but... Any food there is, the Muslims gather up, right, to make sure that Abu Sufyan's troops can't live off the land even for a very short period of time, right? They have to depend on whatever supplies they've brought. Um, now, while, yes, this will stretch the Khoirash troops to the limit, the Medinans, the Muslims are also stretched to the limit. I keep saying the Muslims here. I should really say the Medinans because it's it's this confederation. The Muslims are part of that, right? Some of these people are pagan. Some of them are Jewish. Um, but they're all part of this Muslim-led confederation uh, against the Khoibrash. And all Medinan men of military age have been conscripted. They're all in arms. There is nobody else that they can field to replace their losses. Uh, but the trenches work pretty well. Uh, the Khoirash and their allies first launch a cavalry attack. Uh, the idea being, well, maybe we can just kind of blow the Muslims out of these trenches, right? If we can just kind of break their morale right at the outset, take over the trenches, all of a sudden the city's going to be in bad shape. But the Muslims hold in their trenches and uh, repel the Khoirash attackers. And from that point on, there is a lot of low-level skirmishing. And when I say low-level, I mean like single-digit numbers of casualties get mentioned in the historical sources, right? This is not a raging battle. Uh, once again, there's also some personal dueling. Once again, Muhammad's cousin Ali wins a duel. And the Khoirash decide they're going to turn to diplomacy. There is a Jewish tribe, the Banu Kuraizya, 
who are inside the Medinan defenses. They're on Muhammad's side. They're part of the Muslim Confederation. But they're considering defecting to the Khoirash. Now Muhammad learns of this. Uh, he goes to them. He negotiates. He actually gives them a share of Medina's date harvest for continued loyalty. He offers to give them half of the next year's harvest. They want three quarters. Negotiations break down. But just by negotiating with Muhammad, the Banu Kariza, I hope I pronounced that right, are compromised. Right? They have shown the Khoirash that they are at least willing to negotiate with Muhammad, and, uh, and, and now neither side trusts them. And Muhammad is able to use this to his advantage. He convinces the Banu Kariza that the Khoirash Confederation is planning on slaughtering all the Jews once the Muslims are out of the way. So maybe before they switch sides and join the Khoirash, they should ask for hostages. In and of itself, this was not an uncommon practice in this time period, right? We've seen it before, uh, right? Different people taking hostages, uh, you know, usually the children of major leaders uh, from the other side. The idea being, if you break your agreement, your kids' lives may be at stake. It's a good way to ensure that somebody's going to live up to their side of the bargain. Uh, but... In the meantime, Muslim double agents infiltrate the Khoirash and convince their leaders that the Banu Qurayza are planning to defect and that they're just going to, you know, defect to Muhammad's side and then use these hostages as leverage. So this fuels further mistrust between the Khoirash and the Banu Qurayza, right? The Banu Qurayza keep asking for hostages, getting more and more suspicious every time they're turned down. And the Khoirash keeps saying no, getting more and more suspicious every time the Banu Qurayza come back and ask for hostages again. This leads to a breakdown in the Khoirash Confederation. Without the Banu Qurayza helping them on the inside of the Medinan perimeter, the Confederation ultimately breaks down. And the Khoirash go back to Mecca and to the other places they had come from. And uh, the Muslims turn around and massacre the Banu Qurayza men and sell the women and children into slavery. Obviously, they were untrustworthy, and you could not have that sort of thing in Medina if you were going to survive. And according to the stories, this works out to about 600 to 900 Banu Qurayza men killed. And when you think of the women and children, that's probably anywhere from two to 3,000. But this battle, now called the Battle of the Trench, proves decisive. Muhammad and the Muslims are now the dominant power in Central Arabia. Right? Now understand that this isn't just because of the loss itself. Right? The Khoirash, they only lost like a few dozen men over the course of this battle. But what they lost 
beyond that was prestige. They were no longer the big dogs. They had faced up to the Muslims and backed down. At this point, there follows two years of peace between the Muslims and the Meccans, the Khoirash. And during this period, he engages in a few punitive conquests. There are a few pagan and Jewish tribes who had stood aside uh, rather than come to the defense of Medina when the Khoirash attacked it. Muhammad takes over their land. And ultimately, the Meccans break the peace. Now, this is one of those parts where you should really say this is more complicated because there's a whole story here itself, but... Again, the long and short of it is the Meccans break the peace, Muhammad attacks them, and the Muslims very decisively conquer Mecca in 630. Now, actually, the battle is relatively bloodless, right? Because there is this taboo against bloodshed within the city of Mecca, right? Both the Muslims and the pagan Khoirash, right, once the Muslims get into the city, most of the men are hesitant to actually engage in conflict. So there are very few deaths. And Muhammad now destroys the pagan idols in the Kaaba, in that sanctuary in Mecca. And from that point forward, the Kaaba becomes a Muslim holy site. And it is, in fact, the shrine that Muslims today must visit on the Hajj, right? that mandatory once-in-a-lifetime visit to Mecca. Over the following two years, Muhammad conquers the rest of Arabia, most of it. Um, some of these conquests are made out of revenge for past betrayals or oppression against Muslims. Uh, but many of them are also defensive in nature, right? The surrounding pagan tribes do not appreciate the monotheism of the Muslims, and indeed there are a lot of people who are upset over the destruction of these sacred tribal totems in the Kaaba. And during this time, Muhammad doesn't just conquer most of Arabia, he also sends messengers to the Byzantine and Persian and Ethiopian emperors, among others, asking them to convert to Islam. Now, none of those leaders takes him up on it, but it is notable that he was thinking that far ahead. Now, in the year 632, Muhammad makes an official religious pilgrimage to Mecca. This pilgrimage is what the Muslims now call the Hajj, right? Again, that mandatory pilgrimage to Mecca. And while Muhammad is making this pilgrimage, his followers are carefully noting all of his words and actions, and supposedly they're all noted down in great detail. And that is what current Muslims do today on the Hajj. They literally follow the footsteps of Muhammad. Now, at the same time, there is a little bit of divergence in Islamic tradition here. Um, in the Shia tradition, 
Muhammad gives a sermon at this time and publicly in front of all his followers declares that his cousin Ali, who is now, by the way, also his son-in-law, Ali married Muhammad's daughter Fatima. Uh, Muhammad, according to this tradition, gives a sermon and says that Ali is to be his heir. Sunnis, in their tradition, say that Muhammad never said this. This is one of those areas where it's controversial. But regardless, just a few months after this pilgrimage, Muhammad dies. And he probably dies due to a fever outbreak that was happening in Medina at the time. And controversy immediately breaks out over who is to be the new Muslim leader, right? Remember, according to the Muslim faith, Muhammad is the messenger of God. He is the greatest prophet of all time. Well, now he's gone, right? Who's going to be the new Muslim leader? And not only that, it's not just a religious dispute, right? Because the Muslims are also a tribal confederation, sort of a, a proto-nation at this point. It's, it, it's also a political decision. Uh, so this controversy immediately breaks out uh, among the Muslim tribal elders. A bunch of them get together. And they ultimately agree on Abu Bakr, right? The one of the people I mentioned who was Muhammad's friend and one of his earliest followers. Um, and oddly, also Muhammad's father-in-law, his daughter was one of Muhammad's wives. Um, but there are some holdouts, uh, most notably Muhammad's young cousin, Ali, um, and again, here the tradition differs, right? Depending on whether you're asking a Shia or a Sunni, but it seems like however things were resolved, um, Ali reconciled with Abu Bakr about six months later and the Muslims were once again united. Uh, now, I should note that there were a few other disputes at this point, uh, mostly relating to how... Uh, how the Muslims should handle the inheritance of Muhammad's daughter Fatima. There was some dispute over whether the Prophet could actually leave material belongings to anybody because he was a servant of God, so therefore his material belongings really belong to God. I mean, again, you're really kind of getting into the weeds here, but the point being a lot of seeds are planted at this point uh, for the division between uh, what we now call Sunni and Shia Muslims. For instance, Abu Bakr is recognized by Sunni Muslims as the first legitimate leader of Islam after Muhammad, uh, while Shia Muslims believe that Ali was Muhammad's legitimate heir and that everybody between Muhammad and Ali was basically a usurper. In fact, only the Twelver Shias believe this, and there are other Shias who believe other things. Again, this is really complicated, and I'm just trying to convey what's going on here in broad strokes so we can understand the broader implications of everything that's going on, right? So whether you believe the Shia tradition where Abu Bakr's rise to power is presented sort of like a coup, where 
actually Abu Bakr's followers barricade Ali and Fatima in their house and threaten to burn it down, or whether you believe the Sunni tradition where things were much more orderly than that, uh, it does seem that the only reason there was not an immediate split in the Muslim community uh, is that the Muslims could not survive unless they were united. Right, both the Shia and the Sunni traditions agree on this. And indeed, several rebellions do break out almost immediately upon Abu Bakr taking power. These revolts are collectively referred to as the Ridda Wars, which translates roughly as the Wars of Apostasy. Uh, without getting too far off into the weeds again, Abu Bakr, uh, who is recognized by most people as a military genius, uh, launches a series of quick strikes and within a single year reunites the Arabian Peninsula. The Muslim caliphate is now an empire. And by the way, when I use that word caliphate, I, I should bring up something I kind of forgot to mention before. Um, Abu Bakr, when he becomes leader of the Muslims, is declared caliph. And this is a title basically for a worldly leader who follows Islam and who is running a Muslim country. Now, at the time, the concept basically meant ruler of all Muslims, but it's changed over the years later in Islamic history. You'll see multiple caliphs throughout the world, and, you know, as, as long as you were living under a caliph, you were a good Muslim, and the, and the Shia tradition is entirely different. And again, it's really, really complicated, but... Abu Bakr's title is caliph, and what it means is he's in charge of all the Muslims. But during these reconquests of Arabia, there are some troubling events. Uh, there is one event where 500 of the Muslims who memorized the Quran are killed in a battle. Now, you might wonder why this is troubling. Isn't the Quran like this really big, heavy book, and aren't people reading it? Well, yes, I have a Quran, actually. It's a big, heavy book, and there are hundreds of millions of Korans just like it in the world. But at this time, the Quran was primarily preserved in oral form, right? What the Quran is is basically... In the Islamic tradition, it is the set of verses given by God to Muhammad through the angel Gabriel, right? And then Muhammad, during his teachings, gave these words to the people, and people remembered what he said, right? This was very important, obviously, uh, if the prophet is dead, to remember everything he said, uh, and... Uh, these Muslims who were remembering the Quran would sit down together and they would exchange verses. So, you know, maybe maybe I remember the first few verses here, but, oh, I, I forgot what came next. And, oh, you remember those verses, right? So they were constantly reinforcing in this oral tradition to preserve the words of Muhammad. And when 500 of them get killed, um, Abu Bakr realizes that it's possible that some of the Quran might get lost, right? What happens if you have a really bad battle 
and all the Muslims who memorize the sayings of the Prophet get killed. You've lost that. And I, I need to stress here how important the Quranic verses are in Islamic tradition, right? Uh, famously, most Islamic traditions do not permit uh, paintings of uh, the Prophet or of other sacred figures, right? Many Islamic traditions forbid painting of people or, or even wildlife altogether. But uh, what you will see when you go into most mosques is giant flowing calligraphy all over the place, and it's all Quranic verses, right? That is how even the places of worship are decorated, is with literally these words uh, that Muhammad spoke. So they're really important in that tradition, and what Abu Bakr does is order that the Quran, the sayings of Muhammad, be preserved in written form. And he has a whole bunch of scholars and theologians go throughout Arabia and interview a bunch of people. And the other thing they do is, um, during this time, it is traditional for Muslims to write down small scraps of uh, the Quran, just a few verses that are important to them or relevant for whatever reason, and they would put them in their homes, or uh, the texts even talk about people tying up strips of parchment in trees uh, or along roadsides. And these scholars and theologians go around and collect all of these, you know, sort of devotional scraps. And along with the oral tradition, they're able to put together the Arabic text of the Quran, which is more or less the Quran we have today. Again, it's really complicated. But for this reason, Abu Bakr, despite the fact that Shiite Muslims see him as a usurper, is nonetheless still an important figure in the Shiite tradition, if only for this alone. Um, that and you know, preventing the complete collapse of the Islamic Caliphate before it even got going, right? Again, he executed these military strikes and really kept things together. Um, but, but at this point, Abu Bakr has sort of become a victim of his own success, or the, the Muslims in general have, right? They've put together the Arabian Peninsula. They've united all these fractious tribes from all over that area into a, a unified polity, but now he's one of the three empires on the block, right? Remember I said that the Romans never invaded Arabia. Uh, to my knowledge, neither did the Persians, and for the same reason, right? These were a bunch of separate tribes. It was kind of a difficult area to conquer, even if you wanted to. And, well, trade is good for everybody. Just keep trading with them. But all of a sudden, the Muslims are now a unified empire. That changes the power dynamic, Right, if you were the Byzantine Empire a few years ago, you had this very hostile Persian Empire, right, to your east. But to the southeast, you had these friendly Arab traders who you traded with, right? There wasn't really a threat there. And same for the Persian Empire, by the way, right? To your west, you've got this very hostile Byzantine Empire. But to your southwest, you've got these friendly Arab traders. Well, what happens when those non-threatening, divided, tribal trading people 
are suddenly an empire. Right? Abu Bakr is now the military and political equal of the Byzantine or Persian emperor. And if you are the Byzantine or Persian emperor, I imagine at this point in time, you are not sleeping quite so well as you were a few years ago. And Abu Bakr is afraid that one of these empires is going to strike. One of them is going to attack the Muslims. But both of them are not as strong as they appear at first glance, right? The Byzantines and the Persians, they've been at war on and off for hundreds of years. Right? I mean, going back to when the Byzantine Empire was part of the Roman Empire, they've been at war on and off with the Persians for that long. So both of these empires are a little bit tired out. And in 633, Abu Bakr sends out some small Muslim armies. Now, they don't attack any major cities or engage in any major battles, but they seize just a little bit of land from both the Persian territory in the Middle East and the Byzantine territory in the Levant. Uh, there's small raids, they seize a few small settlements, and before anything else can really get going, Abu Bakr dies in August of 634. Now, he has, before his death, appointed a man named Umar ibn al-Khattab, or just Omar, as his successor. Uh, and Omar had been a later convert to Islam. Uh, he was a Meccan tribal leader, right? One of the other uh, Quraysh tribal leaders. And at one point, he had even threatened to kill Muhammad. Uh, now, this was before Muhammad's exile to Medina. This was quite a while ago. It was back in 616, according to the story, uh, Omar uh, had learned that his sister and his brother-in-law had converted to Islam. And he argued with his brother-in-law, right? This is a patriarchal society. He doesn't go to his sister. He goes to his sister's husband. What are you doing with my sister? And she overhears the argument, though, and she steps in and... Uh, according to the story, Omar uh, slapped her so hard that she fell to the ground, bleeding from the mouth. And she was crying, and to console herself, she started reading words off a scrap of paper. Uh, and it turns out that this scrap of paper was one of those uh, little devotional uh, Quranic scraps I was talking about that early Muslims would you know, sometimes even carry on their persons for devotional purposes. And she's sort of comforting herself by reading this verse, and Omar asks to see it, and uh, she refuses because he's a pagan and he's ritually unclean and he can't touch it unless he first ritually cleans himself, right? Now, this girl, you gotta, she, she's got some guts, right? I mean, he just slapped her and knocked her down, and he still, she still won't hand over this scrap. Uh, and they argue, and eventually Omar uh, relented, and uh, he, he cleans himself up and reads the verse, and he immediately converts to Islam. Whether this story is literally true or not, that is the story. And the conversion of Omar 
is often credited for the Muslims' return from Ethiopia, right? Remember I said the embargo was lifted. Uh, it's probable that there were a lot more Muslims in Mecca now. Well, Omar was uh, a very, very influential one of those Muslims. Um, and in fact, uh, in the Sunni tradition, not the Shia tradition, but in the Sunni tradition, it said that when Muhammad died, Omar was so upset that he uh, he then threatened to kill anyone who said so, and that only upon hearing the news from Abu Bakr himself did he accept it. But anyway, enough about Omar's past. The year is 634, and Omar has just been appointed the new caliph of the Muslims. And he faces... Uh, some initial opposition from the tribal chiefs, much like Abu Bakr did. But he has a little bit different response, right? I mean, number one, this isn't an out-and-out -out rebellion, as it was with uh, Abu Bakr. Right? This is pushback from some of the elites, but no open violence. Uh, and it requires a similarly deft touch, what Omar does is he announces a series of welfare programs for the poor. Uh, now, I should point out that uh, right under Muhammad and later Abu Bakr, there were already uh, some assistance programs for the poor, but Omar uh, very much expands them, and this makes the poor very grateful to him. At the same time, uh, he proclaims an amnesty, Right. There are thousands of Bedouin people who had rebelled against Abu Bakr during the Riddah Wars, who had been enslaved, and Omar uh, lets them free. So now they support him. And this virtually overnight makes Omar impossible for the tribal elites to attack. Right. He has too much support from the common people. And Omar establishes an administrative state and a bureaucracy. Right? This is the point where the Muslims go from being a very large tribe to an actual administrative state. Technically, this started under Abu Bakr, but right, the Muslim country, which is now uh, called the Rashidun Caliphate, is starting to look more like any other empire. There are various government agencies to perform different functions, right? Tax collection is a little bit more formalized, and there are governors for different districts. Uh, right? It's looking a lot less like a tribal society. And over the course of Omar's conquests, which we'll talk about a little bit more you know, coming up, but during the course of these conquests, Arabia grew not just wealthy, but populous, right? It was the heart of the empire. So if you're one of these people who lives in a territory that gets conquered by the Rashidun Caliphate uh, and you convert to Islam, there are plenty of opportunities for you in Arabia, but to support this population, Arabia needed more food. There were a couple of ways uh, Omar did it. Uh, and uh, the first was to construct more irrigation canals in and around Mecca and Medina themselves. But there's only so much you can do with a desert oasis. Uh, 
So he also ordered a canal dug in Egypt, connecting the Red Sea to the Nile River, and that made it easy to import food. Oh, yeah, the Rashidun Caliphate is going to control Egypt in a second. Uh, but first, from 634 to 638, Omar has his focus on the Levant, right? That area of the world where you find countries like Syria. Uh, his armies attack and seize modern-day Jordan, Israel, and Syria, right? Remember, Abu Bakr had sent some preliminary raiding missions into those areas, but hadn't really conquered anything. Omar just seizes that land from the Byzantines over the course of a four-year campaign. The Byzantines, from what we can tell, are taken very much by surprise. And surprisingly, they also don't have a lot of support from the local people. And the reason for this might be counterintuitive to some modern people, right? If you know much about Islam during this time period, you know that conquered peoples basically uh, had the choice of convert or die. Kind of. Uh, see, there were a lot of Christians and Jews in these areas, right? these being you know, former Roman provinces and all. And... Those people were considered uh, what the Muslims called people of the book, right? They were allowed to maintain their monotheistic faiths. And as long as they paid a special tax to the Muslims, they would be left in peace. And to a modern person, well, this doesn't sound very nice at all. They're going to charge me an extra tax because I'm Jewish or Christian? Well... Yeah, but the fine print is that the Byzantine taxes were already insanely high. So if you were one of the common people in these areas, you know, even if you were a Christian or a Jew and you you, know, you weren't a big fan of your new Muslim overlords, well, you're paying a lot less in taxes. That's a significant selling point in a time and place where most people had a subsistence level of wealth, right? And when you have a subsistence level of wealth, when you're barely able to provide for your family, any amount of taxes uh, can be stressful. And boy, you'd sure like to see a tax cut. And here's Omar and the Muslims coming in and they're offering you a tax cut. You can see how this was a problem for the Byzantines. And 637... The Byzantines do order a counterattack. They do muster a counterstrike coming from Mesopotamia into the Levant, sort of trying to cut off the Muslim armies in the Levant. Uh, and they do this with a combination of mercenaries and with some Christian Arab allies, but Omar defeats them decisively. And... Not only does he now control the Levant, but he controls the Byzantine half of Mesopotamia. And to add insult to injury in the year 638, Omar's men seize Christian Armenia, and they even raid the Byzantine Empire as far as Anatolia. Now, Omar 
is neither able to take Constantinople, nor does he want to take Constantinople. Okay, that's still a little bit above the Muslims' pay grade. But they have inflicted a mighty blow on the Byzantines, and just by pushing them back and raiding Anatolia the way they do, what ends up happening is you end up with some uh, some Muslim and some Christian buffer states that pop up uh, in Anatolia in the coming years. And that's even more complicated, and let's avoid all the nitty-gritty details of that. But basically it creates a buffer zone, right? There's this region in Anatolia that's partially Muslim, partially Christian. It's run by you know, various local rulers, and it's between the Byzantines and the Muslims, and the Rashidun Caliphate, I should say, at this point. Now, Omar's conquests do not all come off entirely smoothly. There are some setbacks. Uh, from the year 638 to 640, there is a famine in Arabia, and food needs to be imported from Mesopotamia. Now, it doesn't look like a whole lot of people actually starve. It looks like Omar did a pretty good job of managing this situation, but it was a pretty close-run thing, and that became uh, the impetus for many of those construction projects that I was talking about. Uh, from 640 to 642, right after the famine, the Muslims conquer Egypt in a relatively easy conquest. Uh, it Egypt had technically been part of the Byzantine Empire, but the Byzantines were not able to muster much of a defense. And again, this conquest may have been motivated by that food shortage, right? Remember, Egypt is a huge exporter of food at this time, and now Omar can build that canal from the Red Sea to the Nile that he wants to build. And in 642, the Byzantine Empire has been reduced to Greece, northern Anatolia, the Balkans, some of Italy, and then they have this territory way over in North Africa, those old Vandal kingdoms that are no longer Vandal, but that area of uh, North Africa, and they, they can hardly even support that. And uh, meanwhile, the Muslims, the Rashidun Caliphate, uh, they can now produce large amounts of food that they couldn't produce before, so their armies are even bigger than previously. Now, the Byzantines, right, they've taken a few pretty hard punches here, but all this time the Persians have been slowly mustering their strength. They've been launching low-scale raids on Muslim territory in Mesopotamia ever since Abu Bakr died. Um, and now that his... North is secure, right? Omar has created that buffer zone in Anatolia, and his West is secure. He owns Egypt and doesn't really have much to worry about from Byzantine North Africa. Uh, Omar is now free to take a punch at the Persians. And what is about to happen to the Persian Empire makes what happened to the Byzantine Empire look like a walk in the park because the Persian Empire in just a few years is not even going to exist. 
In 642, Omar's armies invade, and uh, there is a battle in Mesopotamia, which the Rashidun Caliphate wins, and from that point on, they basically just steamroll the Persian Empire. Uh, there are a number of reasons the Rashidun Caliphate is so successful in this conquest. For one thing, the Persian Empire is in a similar situation to what the Byzantines are facing right now tax-wise. They've been at war on and off for hundreds of years. They have very high tax rates. Boy, if you're one of these average people, uh, you know, Rashidun Caliphate rule looks pretty good compared to what you're dealing uh, with from your Sassanid masters. Uh, in addition, the uh, Sassanids, that's the current uh, regime in Persia, uh, they were also having uh, additional trouble. They had just gotten out of a civil war, so their military was weakened and their society was strained, even though they'd been sort of showing force by launching low-scale raids against the Rashidun Caliphate all this time. That was really all they could muster. And after one big battle, uh, that was it for the Persian Empire. And another final factor is that the slow Persian cavalry and light archers that they fought with were just no match for the light Arab cavalry, right? The Arabs could strike the archers, and if the Persian cavalry tries to respond, well, the Arabs can just run away and then come back and do it again. Um, regardless of the fact that this looks like a fairly easy conquest, one should remember that this is the second and last time anyone ever conquered the Persian Empire from outside. Right? The first time was Alexander. There have been civil wars, there have been coups, there have been uprisings by people who are under Persian rule who end up being the ones in charge, but this is only the second time that someone has successfully invaded from the outside. And Omar deserves a lot of credit for that. Unfortunately, uh, he does not get to enjoy the fruits of his victory. In 644, while he is visiting Mecca on the Hajj, Omar is killed by a Persian slave named Abu Lulu. Uh, Abu Lulu ambushes him in a mosque during prayers, and stabs him several times. And while it is believed that Abu Lulu was doing this out of revenge for the Muslim conquest of Persia, we will never know for sure because the crowd tried to seize him, but he managed to fight a bunch of them off and then commit suicide before he could be captured and questioned. Omar is gravely wounded, uh, but... Before he dies, he is able to appoint a committee of six tribal leaders, and the idea is that these six tribal leaders will choose the next caliph from amongst their number. It is also to be noted that while he's on his deathbed, uh, Omar's son, Ubadullah, slaughters several Persians in Mecca, tries to instigate a massacre, and the, the other Muslims kind of have to arrest him. And uh, 
The tribal leaders have to decide, first off, which one of them is going to be the next caliph, and number two, what in the world to do with Ubadullah after he's murdered all these Persians. Uh, they decide to pay blood money to the dead Persians' families so that Ubadullah can be set free. And then they appoint a new caliph named Uthman. Uh, Uthman had been one of Muhammad's earliest followers. Uh, he had actually been introduced to Muhammad by Abu Bakr shortly after Abu Bakr himself had become a believer. Um, and Uthman had been there at you know, the Battle of the Trench and the Battle of Bader and all the rest of Muhammad's conquests and the conquests of Abu Bakr and all through Omar's reign. He was a long-standing figure. And you might think that when you appoint somebody who's this long-standing that the empire might get stagnant. But actually, during his reign, Uthman institutes a number of economic reforms. Uh, for one thing, he increases the welfare allowance that Omar had already instituted and raised. Uh, he then goes a step further and offers public loans for the purchase of real estate in conquered territories. Now, this solved a problem that the Rashidun Caliphate had had, right? They would conquer a new area, and they would really like to reward their troops with some land, but they can't do that without stealing the land, and it's not Islamic to steal the land from the people. So while they might conquer and even place the land under Muslim rule, they couldn't just straight up take the land from one person and give it to a Muslim soldier, right? That would be stealing. So, with these public loans, Omar could now reward his soldiers with land, right? Uh, the soldiers conquer a territory. They apply to a loan from the government. They then pay the conquered people for their land and take over that way. And then the soldiers have to repay the loan, but at least... He's able to give them land without having to steal it. During this time, Uthman conquers the remainder of Sassanid Persia. Right, He finishes what uh, Omar started, and he extends Muslim rule as far as an area that ancient people called Bactria. That is basically modern-day Afghanistan most of modern-day Afghanistan, at least as far south as the Hindu Kush. Anyway, that's a pretty long ways east from Arabia already that this Islamic empire is spreading. Now, much like before, this success does not come without some types of setbacks. In the year 656, there is a revolt in Egypt... And the causes of this revolt are yet another one of those things that are just really complicated and also controversial, and we don't really know for sure because the Sunni and Shia sources both tell us different stories. Uh, basically, the Sunni sources take Uthman's side and say that the Egyptian rebels were out of line, uh, and the Shia sources take the side of the rebels, saying that Uthman was really not a very good caliph and needed to be removed. Uh, Regardless, what uh, 
what both sides do seem to agree on is that Uthman is ultimately besieged in his home by the Egyptian rebels. Um, his supporters outnumber the rebels, and they want to fight. But he refuses to allow bloodshed between Muslims. So when the rebels end up storming his house, he offers no resistance and is stabbed to death in the arms of his wife. Now in charge, the rebels nominate Ali, that is Muhammad's young cousin, not so young anymore, uh, but younger cousin, uh, and his son-in-law, and Ali becomes the next caliph. Now, he doesn't just take over this position, right? He actually refuses it first, and he's one of three candidates that the rebels put forward, and all three of them... Uh, for various reasons, can't take the position. Ali simply refuses. However, uh, he is ultimately persuaded to do this because without being able to put forward a leader very quickly, the rebels are facing the prospect of a Muslim civil war. Or, depending on how you look at it, a continuation of the existing Muslim civil war. So, because of this risk, Ali accepts the position... And according to Shia tradition, he is what is called the first imam. That's the first legitimate successor to Muhammad. Now, there would be more imams, but Ali is the most famous. And he is also a revered figure in Sunni tradition. Um, unfortunately, despite everyone's best wishes, a Muslim civil war breaks out anyway. And this is called in Islamic tradition the first fitna. And this rebellion consists mostly of Meccan tribes that are upset that Uthman's killers are not being punished. Um, the rebellion is also backed by Muhammad's own widow, Aisha. And Ali fights a battle against these rebels in 656, and he defeats them. He kills all the leaders. Um, and he puts Aisha in the custody of her brother-in-law in Medina, so she won't be any more trouble. Um, but at, at this point, he runs into another headache, uh, because the Egyptian governor, a man named Muawiyah, he now refuses to pledge support to Ali unless Uthman's killers are arrested. Now, Ali keeps trying to negotiate, but he's in a bit of a bind because Uthman's killers are among his supporters, and every time he tries to negotiate with Muawiyah, they do some little border raid or skirmish to get Muawiyah upset and cause negotiations to break down. Um, and it should be pointed out that Muawiyah himself is not a long-standing governor of Egypt. He himself had only just taken over in a coup when the previous governor left uh, to go consult with Ali in Medina, and Muawina just sort of took over. Uh, and in 657, Ali decides to attack, and he leads a force of 80,000 men against Muawiyah. Uh, Muawiyah marches out to meet them with a superior force of 120,000 men at a village in Syria called Sifin. Um, the armies drop opposite each other, but both sides are hesitant to fight. Again, the idea of a war between Muslims is really not desirable for either side. 
So they spend a hundred days negotiating instead to try and avoid that. Ultimately, the battle commences when Muawiyah's men attack and absolutely maul one of Ali's flanks. This leaves Ali and his command units, his elite troops in the center of the line, exposed. But Ali's other flank, uh, on that flank, there are 300 of the Hafiz-e-Quran. Those are the people who memorize the Quran. Remember talking about them? Well, they've been around for a while, right? At this point, these are people who've been around long enough to have heard Muhammad's teachings in person. Therefore, they're veterans. Uh, they attack Muawiyah's bodyguards. They attack his weak side. And they kill most of the bodyguards, but they're ultimately pushed back. Um, seems like uh, part of the reason is the fact that the Hafiz e Quran are all getting a little bit older, right? They're veteran troops, but they don't quite have the stamina of the younger men. Uh, so despite their success, they are unable to push all the way through uh, to Muawiyah himself and, you know, maybe capture him or whatever and end the battle. Um, at the end of the day, both sides withdraw to their respective positions, but both sides had taken horrendous losses. Um, Ali's side, which marched into the battle, if you will recall, with 80,000 men, 25,000 are killed or wounded. And on Muawiyah's side, who, if you recall, marched into battle with 120,000 men, well, they took 45,000 casualties. These are big numbers, right? And, of course, we should compensate for the fact that this is an ancient source, and ancient sources tend to exaggerate both the sizes of armies and the numbers of casualties, but nonetheless, even if you cut those numbers in half, that's more people than died at the Battle of Antietam, right? That's more than were killed on the first day of the Battle of the Somme when the British lost 20,000 men. That's a bad day for the Rashidun Caliphate. They cannot afford this kind of civil war. And it seems like the leaders on both sides know this, right? Ali, after the both sides have sort of retired for the evening, Ali sends a messenger offering to settle things by personal combat with Muawiyah. Muawiyah refuses, and given the fact that so far in our story, Ali is 2-0 in personal combat to the death, I do not blame Muawiyah. But nonetheless, Ali's allied chiefs convene in a council that night, and they're very worried, uh, right? If these two armies clash again tomorrow, the Rashidun Caliphate may not have an army left to fight any outsiders. So Ali's allied chiefs send another messenger to Muawiyah to ask for arbitration. And when Muawiyah receives the messenger and hears his message, this is what 
he says, according to 9th century Iraqi historian Ibn Hisham. Muawiyah says, By God, he is right. If we meet again tomorrow, the Byzantines will attack our women and children, and the people of Persia will attack the women and children of Iraq. Those with wisdom can understand this. Tie the copies of the Quran to the spear tips. And what he means by that last part is not tie giant books to your spears. He means, right, those devotional scraps. Tie them to your spears as a symbol of truce. And the next day, both sides meet. Negotiations take a long time, uh, a few months. And ultimately, they agree that Ali can remain caliph, but he must punish Uthman's killers, uh, who are members of the Karajite tribe, which are his allies. Um, Ali agrees. He makes war on them, and uh, without getting into too much detail, takes a few years, but he's successful. But his standing in the Muslim world is weakened. Right? He just fought to a stalemate in a civil war. And then he turned his back on his allies to punish them in order to keep peace with his rival in the civil war. That does not inspire confidence if you're trying to get other people to ally with you. Right? They're going to say, oh... Well, I see how well that worked out for the Karajites. Uh, why, why again should I be your ally? Right? It, it, it becomes difficult for him to keep the uh, empire united. And he ends up spending his entire five-year reign, more or less, in a stalemate with Muawiyah. Right? Not an official civil war, but Muawiyah effectively controls the western half of the Rashidun Caliphate. Um, and Ali is assassinated at prayer during the Hajj at a mosque, just like Omar was. He is also assassinated ostensibly as an act of revenge from someone he had conquered. In this case, a Karajite with a poisoned sword. And upon Ali's death, his followers swear allegiance to his son, Hassan ibn Ali, right? Who would be, by the way, Muhammad's grandson, uh, my Fatima. And uh, Hassan ibn Ali was the second imam in Shia tradition. Uh, however, Hassan, in this case, he does not hold much actual territory, right? He's technically the caliph, but... Muawiyah actually controls most of the caliphate. And later in 661, realizing that his situation is really kind of hopeless, Hassan abdicates and he leaves the Muslim caliphate, which now for dynastic reasons is called the Umayyad Caliphate, uh, after the Umayyad clan of the Quraysh tribe that Muawiyah comes from. Uh, uh, Hassan abdicates and leaves the Umayyad Caliphate in Muawiyah's hands. And Muawiyah does not pull any punches in establishing his power. Almost immediately, he orders that prayers in the caliphate, uh, right, the, uh, the weekly prayers uh, that the Muslims pray when they go to the mosque, uh, those prayers will specifically denounce Ali 
And this weekly ritual denouncement of Ali, right, just beating up on the dead, uh, this would continue for 60 years until the practice was eventually abolished. And since then, Ali's image has been rehabilitated, not just with Shia Muslims, right? Obviously, he's the first imam, pretty important guy, but he's also been rehabilitated in Sunni tradition as well. Uh, he's now a pretty well-respected figure in the entire Muslim world. But nevertheless, between his assassination and then the abdication of Hassan ibn Ali, followed by the Umayyad takeover of the caliphate, all of that further deepen the divide between what would ultimately become Sunni and Shia Muslims, right? The Islamic world is still united now in 661, right? It's the Umayyad Caliphate, but cracks are starting to form that will become ever deeper as time goes on. In the meantime, Muawiyah and his successors are very successful. Over the next 90 years, the Umayyad Caliphate conquers Byzantine North Africa and then crosses the Straits of Gibraltar and conquers all the way up through the Iberian Peninsula, right? That's modern-day Spain and Portugal. All of that even gets conquered. They also extend on the other side, on the east, deeper and deeper into Central Asia, and they push further north, reaching as far as Constantinople in the year 718. And that's where we'll pick up in the next episode. The Mediterranean divided between a Muslim caliphate a weakened Byzantine Empire, and the various Catholic kingdoms of France and Italy. How that balance of power would play out over the next few centuries created the modern world as we know it. And that's why it's relevant. Thanks for sticking around, if you have stuck around. Um, I just wanted to make a couple of quick announcements. I know this is a relatively new podcast, so some of you may not have any information about it at all and uh, have no way to get in touch with me. So I'm going to give you a little bit of information here. Uh, to begin with, I make announcements every episode when the show is released and those can be found on twitter or facebook uh, on twitter it's at dan toller podcast that's dan t-o-l-e-r podcast uh, and on facebook just look for dan toller uh, the best way to get a hold of me uh, we do have an email address 
uh, at the show here, and that is just dantollerpodcast at gmail.com. Again, dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for where you can find more episodes of the show, maybe you just came across this somewhere, you can find relevant history on every major podcast service and most of the minor ones. It's available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Deezer, iHeartRadio, Podbean, and a few others that I can't remember at the moment. But it's on there! Just search for Relevant History. That's R-E-L-E-V-A-N-T History. Finally, for anything else, like odds and ends, and my blog, which may or may not get updated regularly, you can find that at dantollerpodcast.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. You can also find episodes there to download or simply listen to them in your browser. Thanks very much, and enjoy your week.